I'm John Crane. And I'm Bernie Crane. You're listening to the Jazz Session. With our dad, Jason Crane. Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 428 for December 16th, 2013. On today's show, baritone saxophonist Sharantha Bedegay. Thank you to the following Kickstarter donors who helped make this season possible. David Rosam, Jordan Anderson, Carrie Bynum, Jill Knapp, Brian Groder, Miles Okazaki, Jeffrey Evans, Lee McCracken, Naomi Deasy, Taylor Haskins, Michael Anderson, Reggie Pace, Ben Hogan, David Wimberly, Craig Peterson, Anthony George, Gene Silverman, Noah Behrman, Andreas Thor, Klaus Hamann, Howard Kogan, Chris Pollock, Ron Weinstock, Paul Hrykaj, Jasmine Lovell-Smith, Chris Pollock, Clark Murray, Robert Hecht, and Melissa Stiliano. I'm pretty sure I just read Chris Pollock's name twice even. Chris, that's how much I thank you that I read your name twice. Thank you very much. Thank you to Chris and everybody. Uh, it's great that so many people help bring the show back. And did you know that you can still help? Even if you missed the Kickstarter campaign, you can become a member of the Jazz Session for $5 a month. You get free MP3s and other exclusive content when you join. And all of the MP3s that have been put up since the show came back, including the Kickstarter MP3s, are up there now, but will be coming down on December 31st. So if you've been thinking about joining and you would like to get a mountain of free music when you join, join right now and you'll get everything that's been put up so far. And then we'll start building up another archive that'll be up for another three months. And then that will come down and so on and so forth. But if you'd like to get in right now and get all of the things that have been posted so far, so in other words, MP3s by every person who's been on the show for this season, plus all the Kickstarter MP3s, plus extra MP3s that musicians have donated, kick in your five bucks a month and you'll get all of those. You'll get a password and you just go to the members page and you can download all of those. So thank you very much to everybody who's joined so far. Although I should mention that no one has joined since the previous show. So uh, we could use a few folks here at the end of the year. If you're a Kickstarter donor, you just use the same password that you had during the campaign. And as I mentioned, if you're a new donor, I'll send you a, a password and that'll get you into the, to the members page. You can join by visiting thejazzsession.com slash join. Speaking of other ways to help the show, of course, you can tell your friends about it on Facebook and Twitter and by word of mouth and postcard and all that kind of thing. You can also rate the show in iTunes. Just go to the Jazz Session in the podcast section of the iTunes store and give the show a high star rating and a review. And that just helps it move up in the rankings and more people will find the show. Also, feel free to interact with me by leaving comments on this post at uh, thejazzsession.com in the show notes for this post. And if uh, they relate to the artist, I often pass them on to the artist. So that's a great way to comment to the musicians, too. When I was in Detroit at the Detroit Jazz Festival, I was uh, very happy to run into Sharantha, who, uh, as it turns out, as you'll hear in the interview, I share a lot of kind of geographical similarities with. Uh, he's a very fine baritone saxophone player. You're going to hear some of his music right now. And then the conversation we recorded at the Detroit Jazz Festival earlier this year.
guest is the baritone saxophonist Sharantha Betagay, who is uh, here at the Detroit Jazz Festival, uh, where we're hanging out, I don't know, on the 700th floor of a hotel looking into Canada, where he makes his home, as a matter of fact. And uh, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Now, we, uh, we have a fair amount of geographical commonalities uh, between us. I used to work at a jazz station in Rochester, New York. You got your PhD at Eastman School. We know people in common. You recorded your first record uh, in the town where I went to high school, in Canandaigua, New York, mm-hmm. recorded by Malcolm Kirby of the Respect Sextet, who's the theme music to this show. And it features, and now I have to say it, and I hope the lawyers take note, and it features Jared Schoenig, whose name <laughs> has now been mentioned as it's contractually <laughs> obligated to be. Uh, so we... We share a lot of geography in common, and we've even met at one point yes. uh, something like 7,000 years ago. Yes, I think. in Rochester. Yes. Yes. That's fabulous. So I'm really excited whenever I meet people who like have some understanding of what the geography is like. And also because I think there's a really cool, I don't know, almost kind of a, a willingness to to search and experiment that I hear among a lot of people who kind of come out of that scene because there's so many good players on that scene. So maybe even if it's not a weird place to start, we can talk just a, a little bit about um, your time there at Eastman and and how it's prepared you for what you're doing these days. Well, I was in my master's at William Patterson University in New Jersey, uh, which was a fantastic place as well. And at that point in time, I started thinking, okay, in addition to performing, I'd really like to pursue teaching. And that was a big part of my decision to eventually go to Eastman. My teacher at the time, David Dempsey, said, hey, why don't you check out Eastman? Ray Ricker is there. He's an amazing clarinetist, uh, saxophonist, composer, uh, jack-of-all-trades. And so that was my initial point of contact with him. I went and took a lesson and got a tour of the place and, and figured out, okay, this is a place where I could really get to work with some fantastic people and also really start to develop my teaching chops. And that definitely happened. Uh, they put their graduate students uh, to work when you're over there. And in my second semester of my doctorate, I had three of my own classes and it was, that was a real a great experience to you be able to. You had three classes in your second semester? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Man, oh man. Yeah. That's a pretty serious teaching load. I know a lot of professors who don't have three classes <laughs> right. who only do that. They're not also getting a doctorate. Yeah. 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 No, it was wild, but uh, an amazing experience and and got to meet some great people and, and formed a group there with guys that I went to school with, like Jared and Mike Stryker and Ryan Kotler, some friends of mine from school days. And and um, so great musical connections, but also my first real experience in the, in the teaching gig, which was fantastic. I want to talk a little bit about teaching, which is what you do now in uh, Toronto. And the, obviously, we've we've come to a, a kind of place in the jazz world where now that it's no longer really possible, except for a very lucky few people, to go on the road and apprentice in the old way. Well, mm-hmm. that's in the old way where you'd play six nights a week somewhere. That's gone. Some people still do get to apprentice, but not very many. And so really, the institutional system has replaced that as mm-hmm. the way jazz musicians learn. And I wonder, as someone with your own background, obviously going as far as the PhD level and who's now involved in helping the next generation of musicians, what do you see that we've either gained or lost or both from this new paradigm of the kind of institutionalization of the music? You know what? I think it's an interesting uh, transition that's occurred. And again, my generation... I and many of my colleagues are certainly quite used to the idea of this institutionalized system. And um, regardless of the setting, I think that that aspect of mentorship between a younger musician and an older, more experienced musician who's just been down the road for a few more years and had more experiences under their belt, I think regardless of the setting, 
that's the most important thing. And and anytime I made a decision to go study at a specific place, it wasn't so much for the place, it was for one specific person. And so that idea of mentorship is, is certainly not lost on me. And I know a lot of other players in my generation who would probably attest to the same thing. So I think that's the key. I mean, that's the oral tradition. That's the history of the music. It's in a different building, you know, or buildings than it was before. But I think that aspect of mentorship will always be the key. You just can't learn it all out of a book. It's just, it's never going to happen. You know, you know, it's interesting. I don't think I've certainly asked that question to many people uh, over the years on this show. And I don't think anyone's ever answered it quite that way. I, I usually set up the question to, to be kind of a, a dichotomy between the, the old tradition of apprenticeship with a master and the new tradition of classroom learning. But your answer suggests more that they, all of those things are part and parcel of this idea of kind of mentorship or apprenticeship that it, that the setting may have changed. But to some degree, the the concept behind it, the theory behind it hasn't. And, and, and in terms of the private lesson, right? I mean, obviously, classroom teaching in an institutionalized setting, college, school, whatever, presents certain big challenges in terms of how do you deal with a group of people, where in the tradition, we're talking about one-on-one -on -one mentorship. And obviously, the private lesson is that's the place where that really happens. And it's very difficult to make that kind of personal connection when I'm teaching a theory class or an ensemble or whatever it is with, you know, 20 or 25 people. Um, that's hard. It's still possible to be able to make those connections and help draw parallels between the music and help the students learn. But, um, but yeah, the mentorship piece, I think, uh, is, 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 probably that for me has been the most vital part of my own personal development. Will you take us back in your own story and talk about, was there a, was there a person who started you on this path of music as something more than just an avocation and something that you would actually pursue? You know, I think it happened gradually for me. I was kind of bent on going the pre-med science route for a long time. And, and uh, I studied music as a child. I had a mentor in high school who kind of took me under his wing and said, let's go out and play some gigs and learn some tunes and get your feet wet. And so that was a real encouragement for me. But I was kind of midway through my undergrad in biology when I finally realized, uh-oh, I can't put the same amount of time into studying this stuff as I want to into music as well. I couldn't pursue both wholeheartedly um, because there just weren't enough hours in the day and my attention was kind of being sapped in one direction over the other. So I thought, okay, uh, I was going to wait on this, but I think the time to make the changes now. So I had a lot of people along the way who just gave me positive encouragement. Uh, the people who I teach with at Humber College these days were all people that I got to know at camps and at festivals and they were in my corner from the very beginning and, and they didn't push me to pursue it. I mean, I, I think at the end of the day, if you're going to pursue it, you have to be self-motivated and, and you have to have that intrinsic uh, drive to be able to pursue it no matter what, because there's a ton of failure and rejection and low points that come with any kind of artistic pursuit. But those people gave me tons of positive feedback and just said, you know, go for it, man. It's, it's, it's going to happen if you, if you put the time in and, and, and really put the effort in. So there were a lot of people along the way. I don't think it was just one person, but I had lots of encouragement from the top. Well, plus you made the smart financial choice because rather than a life of poverty as a doctor, you've chosen a life of wealth as a musician. <laughs> right, so, exactly. Yeah. Yes. I mean, so just from a purely practical standpoint, it's definitely, <laughs> definitely the way to go. That's right. <laughs> now, you're also a baritone saxophonist, which um, is just one of those instruments that you can, I mean, I, we could probably between us name 
all of the well-known baritone saxophonists, and it wouldn't take very long. Mm-hmm. Uh, and whenever I see someone who who plays a less common instrument like that, and from a very common family of instruments, but a soprano saxophonist, a very saxophonist, I always wonder, okay, was there a moment, was there a person, was there an album you heard where you thought, oh, that's a sound I didn't know existed, but that's the sound I want to be making? Um, not initially. To be honest with you, I was landed with the baritone saxophone. I was more or less forced to play by my high school teacher who needed someone tall, uh, in the ninth grade. And I fit the bill for that. I had my spurt already. So I, I was the, the right man for the job in ninth grade and uh, kept on doing it, enjoyed the sound of the instrument. But, but to be honest, as a kid, the only people that I'd been listening to and had exposure to perhaps were tenor players. So I kind of sounded probably more like a tenor player than a baritone player when I was starting out. And then, when I moved uh, to the New Jersey area and studied with Gary Smolian, I, I remember our first lesson, he just played a long tone for me, and I went, oh, okay, that's how it's supposed to sound. <laughs> I'm going to go practice for the next two years. <laughs> so that ex- exposure, and then, of course, he just gave me so many people and names and, and, and resources to check out. And really, to be honest with you, that's when I first started knowing more of the tradition. I mean, I knew Jerry Mulligan and the kind of the obvious names to some degree, but to delve into them and really start listening to them and checking that out, that really didn't happen until I was in the New York area, to be quite honest. But but yeah, Gary was kind of the first kick in the butt for me as a baritone player. Will you say more about that? Say more about what you heard in that moment that you realized you hadn't yet brought to your berry playing there's just a power a raw power and energy that that he in person had but also is the spirit of a pepper adams and 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 so many that have uh, that have that have come before even but but specifically with pepper i mean i hear the spirit of pepper and in, in gary's playing you know and and gary will i'm sure attest that pepper is one of his main influences and that's no surprise but there was something about the drive and the and the just unabashed energy of that uh that really surprised me in person. And I know I'd heard him on records. I knew who he was. And I went to New York to study with the guy, but I'd never heard him in person. And when I go hear him at the Vanguard, it was exactly the same thing. I would be 30 feet away in the audience. And then there was this wall of sound that hit you. So there's a focus, there's an intensity, but there's also a real, I don't know how to describe it, an edge to his sound that again, I think is drawn from that spirit of pepper that, that I, I was really drawn to. And it's, it was reminiscent of the edge in the sound that Coltrane had. And I know as a, as a listener to tenor players as a kid, Coltrane was one of my, my main influences as for a lot of people. But I, maybe I subconsciously made that connection between train sound and Gary and Pepper and those guys that had that rawness. Thank you. 
once you'd heard that, what was involved for you in then trying to find your own expression of that sound? You know, I still think I'm working towards that. But um, to be honest with you, I think to be able to harness the, the, the power of the instrument, there the, the, that you do have to put, to not oversimplify, of course there's a lot of air involved, but it's a challenge because in a live setting, the baritone, by the nature that it is a low-pitch instrument, doesn't inherently have the same kind of cutting power as an alto or a trumpet or whatever it is, just because of the range. So to work towards finding a little bit of edge and brightness to my sound, I've had to experiment a little bit. But to be honest with you, most of it has just been listening and trying to emulate that that um, that sound and, and slight adjustments technically as along the way. But um, but it seems to be something that's necessary for me and the kinds of settings that I play to be able to to cut through, but still have a nice full bodied sound with a good mix of high and low. This may seem like a dumb question, but is is listening central to your development as a musician? Absolutely, absolutely. I, I couldn't I couldn't uh, couldn't grow without it. I mean, I think in my day to day, it's always a balance of listening, practicing, and playing. And when I say the difference between practicing and playing, practicing, working towards things that I haven't yet accomplished, or uh, meditative kind of exercises like a long tone, and playing is just no holds bar, just have fun, you know, uh, in the basement by myself with the, with the instrument and, and, and enjoy the sound that the saxophone makes, as they say. And then just communicating with other people. But yes, listening is always the key because I find that those records that draw me in year after year, week after week, day after day, are the ones that I can come back to and listen to and find a new layer or find something new that I don't understand and then work to try and understand it. How do you uh, what what level are the students that you're teaching? Are they undergrad? Yeah, they're students? all undergrad okay. students. I'm kind of the theory guy at Humber College, so I teach all the first and second years theory, and then I do ensembles and big band and small groups and a mix of other things, a pedagogy and education course in fourth year, but mostly the younger students at the beginning. Okay, so I, I wanted that context so that I could ask how you uh, how are you how do you communicate that the kind of primacy of the listening experience to students. I mean, I, a lot of students, I think, get to jazz school and they've, they have heard some things, but I know like in my own, in my own experience, my listening in high school was to a very limited kind of narrow band. I mean, I grew up as you and I know in Canandaigua. I mean, it's not like there's a great jazz record store there. Right. There wasn't in the eighties either. And I mean, they just had, didn't have access to very much. So it wasn't until I got older that like friends started turning me on to other records. And I wonder now in your role as a, as a mentor and a guide, how do you encourage your students to kind of dig deeper and to listen wider? There's a few things. I mean, I think if you're coming into an undergraduate degree in music, if we use that as a particular example, hopefully your mind is open to the idea that it needs to be open to new ideas. Because otherwise, if you come in feeling like I got this covered, you know, it's going to be a tough sell for you to listen to anything new. And, I get the most joy in a classroom when I ask my students, okay, how many of you have heard of this record or so-and-so? And no hands go up. I feel like that's a victory for me because it's – I have the luxury also of playing music in my classes that I really, really enjoy. Uh, it's never a chore for me. It's always stuff that I just handpick and say, this is fantastic. So for, for my students, I mean, I try to encourage a three-part connection it, between the mind's ear and uh, your physical body – 
and your your hands, you know, or your, 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 the technical aspects of being able to, to perform your instrument. Um, and, and it, it's important because I think when students start to hear the connections between musics and dig deeper, their learning process will speed up. They will be able to assimilate more information to be able to learn tunes more thoroughly, I think, to be able to learn more tunes, which is often the, the challenge of being a jazz musician, just having, you know, whatever, hundreds of tunes in your vocabulary. Um, I, on my first day of class, I always put it to students for, uh, in four different ways. I say, here are my kind of four levels of listening. You have kind of the global level of listening where perhaps somebody who doesn't have a background in music theory or whatever will be, you know, at the Detroit Jazz Festival listening to a show and saying, what's the mood of this music? How does it make me feel? What are the, what's the instrumentation? What do I see? What am I just getting from my senses in a non-analytical kind of way? And then the second level is, you know, perhaps on a more theoretical level, broader structures like how are the musicians interacting? What is the voice leading? What is the form of the piece, etc.? Bigger concepts. And then we have the third level, which is smaller structures like chords and scales and groups of bits of information. And then the sort of microscopic level, which is the intervals and the, the rhythmic values and all those things. To me, coming into music school, you kind of have that first level, hopefully, happening already. And then it's about numbers two and three. And to me, if you get those kinds of inside levels of analysis happening, it will have an overall effect on how people perceive whatever it is is going on. I mean, ultimately, I think for most musicians, you're getting up on stage and you're not thinking about chord scale relationships and all these technical terms that we talk about in school. You just want to kind of let, let it happen. But there's work involved to get to that place. So I think if they start to make those connections, it really can help them to, to grow. So, I mean, and that's where listening comes in, listening, analyzing, thinking, perceiving, extracting, reassembling, all these things are a big part of the process for, for me. And I think it can be for them. Okay. So this discussion of the, the four levels of listening allows me to then go to one of the things that regular listeners to this show will now be extremely tired of, but I never tire of, which is talking about how we break down barriers to, uh, new listeners. Just, in fact, just before you walked into the room, the pianist Michael Weiss walked out and, as he was leaving, we were having this exact conversation about uh, this idea of, to use my friend Kevin Baird's phrase, the jazz priesthood, This uh, that you know you have to know these arcane rights to even listen to the music. Uh-huh. So if you look at a thing like the Detroit Jazz Festival, one of the things I dig about this festival is that it's free, uh-huh. which means that there are all kinds of folks in the audience yeah. who are not – they're not people who will pay 50 bucks or whatever. Or, I mean, maybe they are, but they're not necessarily people who had to pay 50 bucks. Some of them are just folks who are walking by or just folks who brought out the lawn chairs and are just hearing whatever there is to hear. And there, I think that as a jazz industry, if we can use that largely fanciful term, that there is, uh, we inherently talk about the music in terms that discourage people from listening to it. Mm. And that if you and I, I mean, our friends may be in a select group, but that if you and I were to go to friends about our age and say, hey, do you listen to jazz? One of the key responses you'll always get is, no, nah, I don't really understand jazz. Mm-hmm. So this long speech that I'm making now, to bring it back to the actual guest on the show, uh, can you talk about how, first of all, whether you think this is even a problem, and if, if it's an issue, how do we... How do we talk about this music or how do we communicate to people who are not already diehards with that fourth level ability of listening? How do we kind of bring them into the fold 
if that's even a goal that we should be shooting for? I think yes and no. I mean, I think it, it is our, our uh, duty to be aware of how we present the music uh, in a live setting, because well, obviously we're not just playing the music for ourselves. At least I'm not, you know. Uh, it, it's hard. It's a tough line to straddle because on the one hand, you don't want to necessarily compromise the kinds of music that you want to make, but at the same time, you hope that you'll be able to draw people in. And I think there's a variety of ways to do that. I mean, on the very kind of surface levels, during a concert, I'll sometimes introduce a piece of music, talk a little bit about it if it's appropriate, if it doesn't take up too much time or distract the flow of, of the music itself. But I think how we present ourselves as a, as bands, how we present our music can have so many different... Um, it, it can have a positive effect if we if we try and put ourselves in the place of the audience. Like I've, you know, in the last couple of days, seen lots of different groups and I've had very similar thoughts. You know, what are the people in this audience thinking about or listening to or listening for? And I think to be able to say, okay, we're looking for an emotional connection. We're looking for a sense of bands. We want to hear that this group sounds like a group and that it's not thrown together or that it's that it's that it has some sort of cohesion i try uh, uh, when i'm playing to be able to create some different flow in terms of tempo styles feels backstories all these things that can perhaps tell a little bit of a narrative in the course of a set and again those aren't technical musical things that i'm going to have to explain to anybody in the audience in the moment but you know, regardless of their background in jazz, I want to be able to try and create that so that they can feel like they're flowing with us and that there's not a lot of sameness in the performance. I mean, after all, I'm playing a baritone saxophone as a soloist for an hour and there's no singer. It's piano-based drums and myself. So it's hard. It's hard to be able to create that arc, especially when there are no words that are being sung. Um, but I think if we're all conscious of that as musicians when we present our stuff, that's the first thing. But then educational things like, yeah, being able to talk to an audience and communicate our ideas, write them, um, you know, using blogs and websites and social media and outreach events and all these great things that they have going on. And I think the resources that we have at our disposal are far, far greater than we've had in the past, which is fantastic. You know, everything from the very controversial Ken Burns series, you know, which, which, you know, for all the qualms that people have with it, draws an amazing narrative. And I think it's very compelling to be able to introduce somebody who's new to the music. Hey, this is the history. I mean, you don't have to have any jazz theory background to be able to get into that. I think it's very compelling. So there's lots of ways that we can do it, but... Um, I try to do it in a way that doesn't compromise my artistic integrity for the sake of pandering, because I sure. don't think that's right either.
yesterday I was standing in the wings um, listening to uh, the New Breed Bebop Society uh, play their tribute to Teddy Harris. And because of where I was standing, I could see uh, kind of on the other side of the stage. And there was a street that r- runs along the stage here on the main stage in Detroit. And a guy came, was walking down the street, and as he appeared from what was behind a stack of speakers to me, as he appeared, one of the trumpeters was soloing, and he played a really high screaming note. And this guy, he moved like he'd been struck or pushed, and he just whipped around and started looking at the stage. I mean, he'd just been walking by almost oblivious to the fact that the music was happening. And then all of a sudden, this huge smile broke over his face, and he kept, he kept walking. I mean, it looked like he had to get somewhere. He kept walking, but he kept turning around to look. And I... You know, in some ways that seems like a almost like a dumb thing, but I mean, people react like people always clap more for the drum solos. People mm-hmm. hear when the trumpets are screaming. Yeah. You know, when the saxophone player. I mean, this is stuff like the guys who used to walk the bar would you know repeat an arpeggio over and over and over again until yeah. it seemed like wow that must be hard to do, even though it's not hard to do, right? <laughs> but there's there's something about there's a, there's a way that I think some musicians are able to connect on an emotional level. And I hear the, I hear the danger of pandering, and I definitely get that. Part of me, though, like, wants, wants the musician to understand that I'm there and to, and to let me know they know I'm there. Mm. And I don't know how that all balances out with, you know, this is my art and I'm not really doing it for you necessarily, but I don't know. There's just something about that, like seeing, hearing the trumpet player, you know, what? And the guy just—I mean, literally—he like staggered as he was walking, and then he turned around and started smiling. And I thought, there's—I mean, there's something in there. There's some. The music is powerful. Yeah. Sometimes we talk it into powerlessness, but it really is powerful. You know? you know what? I think too. It also depends on. For me, when I'm programming a show and thinking about how I'm going to present the music or what I'm going to present in a given show with my band, and if I have that choice to make. I try to be aware of the venue and the situation and, and all these kinds of things. Like if you know, if I'm playing at the Detroit Jazz Festival or any other kind of outdoor festival where it's free and people are coming in and out and it's in, and there's lots of other stuff going on, I'm probably going to program lots of different material than I would if I were doing it in a concert hall where everybody is paid and they're seated and they're not going to be talking or doing anything, making any noise whatsoever. I'm not going to play the rubato ballad maybe that I have in my program. Some people might be able to pull it off, but for me, it's too. there's too much space. And uh, given the amount of distraction that's or energy or activity that's going on around it, so and I've had to kind of let go of that over time, you know. I, I and and I've made I've screwed that up, you know. I've programmed things on a performance that were turning out to be uh, for for the venue that it was totally inappropriate, and I've tried to learn from that. So I'm still working on it, but that's something that I think we all have to be aware of too. How do we how do we think ahead as to what the situation is going to be like?
let's talk about uh, the new record identity. And if we can, let's just start right with the title. When you um, when you reached out to me, one of the things that you said about the record was that it the title really is suggestive of a process of discovery that you were going through. Will you will you say something about that? A lot of it is about transition for me. When I when I started writing the pieces for the album, most of them were written when I was living very close to where you were living in the last 10 months in Columbus, Georgia. Um, it was my first job. I was out of school and I was uh, trying to find my way as, a, as an official uh, working adult and uh, figuring out life in this uh, new part of the world that I'd never really spent time in down in the deep south. And that was a huge uh, adjustment and transition for me. Um, and so a lot of it was inspired by life down there. Tunes like Skipping the Grits, which is a tune just inspired by all that crazy food that they <laughs> got down there. And none of it is good for you, but it's all really tasty. And uh, and then there were just some things that were inspired actually by some musicians that I got to work with down there. One of them whom I'm sure you know is Dan Tepfer and his trio. They came down and did a residency. Uh, when I was there and I actually wrote some of the pieces like Against Time which is the first tune on the record uh, for that concert with Dan and Richie Barchet and uh, Jorge Reder um, and uh, so some of those things were just inspired by other musicians and then some of the tunes I wrote when I came back to Canada four years ago in, in Toronto and kind of again trying to re- negotiate life as an adult and back in my old town and back in the school where I used to be a student and now I'm teaching there and, and uh, back with family and, and reconnecting with friends. And so there was a lot of transition in the mix when I was writing these tunes. So a variety of circumstances inspired that. The, uh, the album really to me is just kind of very firmly grounded in that kind of classic tradition um, I mean, I think it obviously speaks to the fact that many years have passed since then in the compositions, but it, it sounds to me like a record made by someone who isn't afraid to understand where the music came from. Is, is that a fair Yeah, assessment? I want to put my influences on the table because I... I take, uh, you know, I take great pleasure in telling people where, where I'm coming from because it's, I think we all come from somewhere, right? And to me, the pieces that I wrote for this album and on the previous one as well, the ones that I think are clearly inspired by certain heroes of mine, Joe Henderson and Train and all these other people. Again, I'm not trying to be a copy. I think at the end of the day, nobody's ever going to mistake one of my tunes for one of theirs. But uh, it's a mix of their voice and, and mine. So I uh, I like telling people where I'm coming from. Can you say something about the jazz scene in, in Toronto? There have been a lot of Toronto musicians on this show, and I've spent a lot of time there myself, but I'm always interested. Uh, it's been several years now since I think someone from Toronto has been on the show, and I'm interested to hear what's uh, what's happening these days. You know, Toronto is a fantastic place because it's one of the most diverse places on the planet, uh, culturally, ethnically, however you want to put it. So that presents a really interesting melting pot. It's like a small New York, really. And uh, the musician base there is extremely diverse at an incredibly high level. And there's just no shortage of great people to be able to play with. And also great food to eat and great places to, to visit. The art scene there is really very, very, very strong. And that's one of the things that drew me to it when I was a student there was just seeing the diversity and hearing the diversity musically that presented itself was, uh, was, was a real draw for me. And I think that's healthy. You know, I think we all bring something unique to the table and to be able to have such an interesting stylistic mix to me doesn't detract from the music at all. It adds to it. Did you, uh, did your decision to pursue a career in teaching, did that help not make the decision to move to New York as, as everyone feels like they have to do? 
Well, I was happy that I moved there to be a student. Sure. And moving from Toronto to New York, the energy of the place was kind of overwhelming for me at first. I remember every time, because I lived in New Jersey, driving into the Lincoln Tunnel, and I would get this sharp, stabbing pain up my right arm every time I had to make that, mostly because the traffic was so unpredictable, I could never figure out uh, when I was supposed to leave to get to my gig on time. <laughs> but I was really, really, really happy to be able to have the experience of living there. But Toronto felt like home for me and 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 Georgia did as well. It was a nice opportunity to be able to spend time down there and connect with people. I go down every year to visit because I still maintain relationships with those friends and colleagues. But um Toronto is home for me for a number of reasons. Friends, family is is about 4 hours away. That's nice and and so um yeah, the teaching the teaching position at Humber was very uh was very well timed in terms of that decision, but um it's it's been great to be back. Will you talk about the people who are on identity with you? Sure. Uh, these are mostly Toronto musicians. Uh, three of my colleagues and friends, uh, Dave Restivo, Mark Kelso, and Mike Downs. Those are all Toronto musicians. Dave Restivo on piano, Mike Downs on bass, Mark Kelso on drums. They play on the majority of the record. There's also a couple of tunes that were played by a great young drummer, Larnell Lewis, who lives in Toronto. Uh, he got on the record because he played on the demo that we did uh, to get a grant uh, from the Canadian government to do the record. And uh, that was in 010, quite a while before the rest of the recording was done. And the demo sessions turned out so well, we just kept them because we didn't need to re-record them. And, and his contribution was a big part of that. Tunes like Baker's Dozen and Winds of Change. He brought a really interesting angle uh, to those, uh, to those pieces and they just, uh, they didn't need to be, uh, they didn't need to be replaced. So they were fantastic. And also a good friend of mine who lives in Bloomfield, New Jersey, Nathan Eklund, playing some trumpet on four of the tunes. For our American listeners, uh, that phrase that Sharantha just said was a government grant, which is where the government actually supports the arts. And that's the thing that's uh, – it's not unique to Canada, but it is uniquely not present in the United States. Um, so I'm interested now that you're uh, you know, kind of so deeply involved in the world of academia – how that influences your career as a performer. I mean, obviously you have, you have classes to teach and papers to grade and tests to give and all those kinds of things, but they're all still in this world of music. And so I wonder how that kind of feeds back into your life as a, as a player. You know, I think it all informs my musicianship, the act of being able to communicate any musical concept in a pedagogical sense to another human being is very gratifying for me because it allows me to kind of reframe my thought process of how I got to that place, you know. Uh, and so that's really fun for me because then I get to articulate an idea and somehow that can inform my own process of composing or listening or performing or practicing. It all helps. And of course, the feedback in return from the students is that they get to inspire me as a teacher, which is amazing. Uh, and there's no shortage of talented, hardworking students there. And that's great. Um, I think in terms of the way that I spend my time, I have to really be conscious these days as to how everything gets compartmentalized. Because once the school year rolls around, certain parts of the year are very, 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 very busy. Um, and as a teacher of three marking prep heavy classes, uh, that really is a challenge in terms of balancing things out. As far as big projects goes, doing a record or tour or whatever, I have to for sure save that all for the summer. I don't really do much of that during the year. But we get a, a large chunk of time off in the summertime, which is nice to be able to plan bigger projects like that. But during the year, I sneak it in. 
I do some composing and of course I'm out playing gigs, you know, and, and that really, really helps. But, um, the big stuff I always leave till the end. Just having looked at your uh, event schedule, it looks like there's some large ensemble stuff that's happening in Toronto. Right? Yeah, lots of different groups. In fact, one of the most interesting ones, I think, is Mike Downs, uh, who is the bass player on the record. He's the head of the bass department at Humber, and he has an 11-piece group uh, called In the Current, uh, and they have a new record coming out we recorded in February for the same label that my record is on, Addo Records, which is actually run by my associate dean, Steve Bellamy, who's a great recording engineer from Canada, but also teaches at Humber and, and administrates at Humber now. Um, Mike is a really fantastic musician, and he is a very well-rounded musician. Uh, lots of interesting influences. Gil Evans, in particular, is one that I think he really draws on a lot in his large ensemble work. And he puts the reed players to work. There's three reeds, and between the three of us, we're playing 15 instruments, I think. So six for me and five for the next person. And yeah. And that's really fun. I, I enjoy doing that, so it's 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 a nice challenge for me. Now, wait, I can't tell by the expression on your face if you're being serious or sarcastic when you say it. it's really fun. <laughs> no, it is. It is. I always love a challenge, and, 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 and the volume, the sheer volume of that. Um, yes, the, the, the challenge of the music is equal to the challenge of trying to get it from my car to the gig in, in one trip, <laughs> which I haven't figured out yet. But, uh, yeah, I play in that band. I play uh, soprano, tenor, baritone tone saxophone, flute clarinet, and bass clarinet. Well, I think it's only fair that every once in a while a reed player gets to feel like a drummer or an upright bass player, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. I have to show up before them. Yeah. Let's just be clear on that. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> have, you, uh, have you done large ensemble writing of your own? Yes, I have. I've done some of my own compositions and and uh, lots of arranging for everything from five horn band to big band. And I've never had a big band of my own. I don't have that volume of material yet. Um, but there's something, again, about the, the colors that present themselves when you do a large ensemble work that's really kind of unique and and some of my big influences being the some of the heavies of course Ellington and Bob Brookmeyer and Thad Jones and Maria Schneider and these are people that really resonate with me just in terms of the the, the palette of colors that they use and the sheer power of it and especially in Thad and Basie and all those cases yeah and and also you know writers and arrangers who 
found really interesting ways to use your primary instrument, the very sax. I mean, there's mm. been some really amazing very sax players who passed through those various bands that you just mentioned. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it has a wide variety of possibilities, that instrument, surprisingly. You know, I mean, I think I'm sure a lot of people perked their ears up when Harry Carney started playing on the top of the section, but that's the way that it was written because that's what Duke was hearing. And it's a magical thing. You yeah. Know? So. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. It, it, little, well, things now that seem little like that, like putting Harry on the top of the stack. I mean, those things that made that music instantly recognizable. Obviously, other things contribute to that, too. Mm -hmm. But you can hear, you know, one, two bars of Ellington's compositions. And say, oh, well, that's whose read section that is. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Um, I know uh, many people, even when their album has only fairly recently come out, are already looking toward whatever the next project is going to be. Are you one of those folks or does school suck up that time um it, i'm in school mode at this very second because we start on tuesday oh wow but um but yes i'm definitely looking towards the next thing hopefully next summer we'll be in the in the studio with the same band doing more originals and trying to develop that voice this is my first album with this particular group and i like the idea of being able to develop relationships with them more uh and explore the the timbral possibilities and and compositional possibilities with these guys because now that we've been playing together for a good 2 years or so i think i have a better idea as to where their strengths are and how they can coalesce together and how we can coalesce together as a group so i want to keep writing for that group and and see what we can what we can do you know it's interesting to kind of bring it full circle to where we started in some ways the fact that academia now exists has given musicians a different route to being able to play together more regularly i mean if if the people that you play with regularly are your colleagues at an academic institution, then in the same way that you might have gone on the road for a long time before, you're at least getting the chance to be around each other to play together regularly. You know, I know a lot of the guys that I know in New York, it seems like they, you know, this band was put together and then all of six of us are going on the road for six months with six different bands and then we come back together and... I don't know if this is it mirroring your experience at all, but... Well, you know what? Yes and no. I mean, I interact with these guys at school to some degree, mm. but to be honest with you, it's mostly in faculty meetings, and that's not the most <laughs> not the stimulating thing, yeah. uh, no, <laughs> musical experience. Um, they're delightful, the faculty <laughs> meetings, but uh, the thing is that, you know, in the teaching profession, at least in, in a music school where I am, um, most of the stuff that I do is on my own. You know, I have classes on my own. There's very little collaboration. I mean, unfortunately, unless it's actually on the bandstand at a performance that we're doing sure. at school or somewhere else. It's surprising how much isolation there is. And it's a shame, you know, because a lot of our classes run parallel to each other. And there are occasional opportunities for collaboration and swapping of students and all that stuff. But for the most part, we're kind of we're kind of on our own. So any opportunity that I get to work with these guys is better. Well, there goes my theory. <laughs> That's fine. My, my theory was complete garbage, and I'm perfectly willing to accept that. So you recently won a uh, a misspelled award, uh, and I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about that and your interest in Canadian spelling conventions. <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, I recently won at the Montreal Jazz Festival the Galaxy Rising Star Award. Um, the reason for the misspelling is probably deliberate, <laughs> as Galaxy is spelled with an I-E and not yes, a Y on I'm the end. Yes, I'm just busting the chops of our... Of our neighbors to the north. Yes, it's uh, sponsored by Galaxy Satellite Radio, which is kind of uh, the uh, 
the on television satellite radio network in Canada. They're from Montreal. And uh, so this award is for best compositions uh, for the outdoor groups that were playing at the festival. So when I got selected to play at this festival, I was very honored. And then about a week later, they called me and said, by the way, we're entering you into this competition. And I said, no, fantastic. Great. I had no idea. And then so it turns out they picked 10 of the outdoor uh, uh, bands that are playing and the, the outdoor program at the festival. There are so many that play over the 10 or 11 days. I don't even know. And uh, so they picked 10 Canadian bands. And out of those groups, they give an award for performance, an award for composition. And um, it was fantastic. They picked uh, two of my tunes, Baker's Dozen and Winds of Change, for this award. Uh, and it's a, a scholarship or a, or a, a cash award and a, um, an increased airplay on Galaxy Satellite Radio. And I was uh, very, very honored to do so. Some of the judges uh, among them were Michael Bourne of WBGO. And so I got to meet him and, and hang out for a bit and enjoy his uh, hilarity. And uh, it's a tremendous honor. Oh, that's fantastic. Congratulations. Thank you. Well, my guest is Sharantha Betagay, and the new album is Identity. It's been a real pleasure talking to you, and I'm really glad you, you made the time. Thanks so much for coming by. Thank you. That's music from Sharantha Betagay and uh, his brand new record. Thanks so much to Sharantha for being on the show. Remember, you can help support the show by buying his album in the store at thejazzsession.com. No extra cost to you, but a little bit of your purchase price comes back to help the show. And as a matter of fact, you can click on any album in the store, and then you can buy anything you want at Amazon, and part of your purchase price comes back to the help the show at no additional cost to you. Thanks also to the Respect Sextet for the theme music. Thanks to Dave Rabel for the logo. If you need a Wikipedia page or a bio or a press release, please visit my freelance writing website, cranewrites.com. Cranewrites.com for rates and samples for all of my work, and you'll recognize many of the artists for whom I've already done writing. 
Have a wonderful remainder of 2013. I will next speak to you in 2014. And uh, I'm very... Oh, is that even true? Wait a minute. What is today? How, is there another Monday in this month? Hold on just a second here, kids. Not is there another Monday. Are there two more Mondays would be, of course, the trick. This is li- I'm doing this live. Live in the outro right here because it's a professional organization. Yes, the 30th of December. There is, in fact, another Monday. I'm going to speak to you again in 2013. So... Have a nice rest of 2013 up until the 30th, and then at that point I'll wish you a happy 2013 again. Okay? And a happy 2014. Oh my gosh, it's so exciting. Anyway, I'll speak to you again before the year is over, so enjoy your holidays, whatever they may be, and I'll talk to you again in two weeks. Until then, be nice to somebody, and then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye.